yeah. when they're describing their accomplishments off of their resume, is it I or was it we? Just, and literally just the pronoun difference. Yeah. As they're describing their achievements tells you a lot about their mindset. Hey there, Powder Cake fans. Nick here from the Powder Cake team. This is episode 83 of Powder Cake Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. Today, we're doing something a bit different. We're revisiting an old episode of ours where Matt spoke with Samir Delakia, CEO of Syngrid. The interview happened in March of 2017, and since then, Syngrid went public for $131 million in November 2017, making the Boulder-based company the first company to come out of the Techstars Accelerator to have a successful IPO. And earlier this year in 2019, Syngrid was acquired by Twilio in a $3 billion stock transaction. So we thought we'd bring this episode out of the archives to celebrate one of the latest big wins for tech between the coasts. So let's get to the interview. I'm so eager to dive into this conversation with our guest today, but first let me give you a little bit of background because I think it's going to provide some helpful context for understanding the stories and advice that are shared in this particular interview. Our guest today, of course, is Samir Delakia, who has over 20 years of experience in successfully bringing high-growth, disruptive cloud and enterprise software products to market. He, of course, is the CEO at SendGrid, which is a software platform that sends literally more than a billion emails per day through their technology. They have over 1.7 billion unique recipients and have more than 50,000 paying customers. Prior to joining SendGrid, he served as the group vice president and general manager of the cloud platforms group at Citrix, huge technology company. And prior to that, he worked for 12 years at Trilogy, where he held key leadership roles in sales, business development, product management, and helped grow that company from a startup to a $300 million technology business. He's got his bachelor's and master's degree from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He's got that technical training and sort of the more traditional training as well as literally decades of experience in the software world. In this interview, we talk a little bit about email and the state of email software, which is particularly interesting because it's a market you might not understand exactly just how big the implications are onto everything else from social media to other marketing platforms to just how we do business day to day. But we also talk a lot about building company culture and how to lead as an executive, whether it's at a startup or at a high growth enterprise company. We are going to cover a lot. So I hope you guys are ready for this. Let's set this thing off. Uh, Samir, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to connect with me here at WeWork in New York. Have you been here before? I have not. I have not, but this is cool. What a beautiful setup. It's, it's really awesome, awesome, right? Yeah. 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 This is great. This is, I think, our fourth meeting room we checked out this morning for, <laughs> for this interview. I think we found just right one. I feel like Perfect. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Our porridge is good. I'm excited. <laughs> good. Well, I'm here to ask the tough questions, Samir. All right. Um, Shoot. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the deep end right, right, right off the bat, right? Go ahead. Hit me. Um, clearly, email is dead from everything it's I've seen from the headlines. Clearly. <laughs> uh, how, well, how, do you, uh, how do you deal with that, being clearly in a dying industry and, yeah, uh, it's, and struggling to take advantage of, of a dying industry? It's so, it's so challenging, I tell you. <laughs> uh, it's remarkable. Our email volume... Um, year over year is only growing 50%. It's clearly, <laughs> it's dying. Right? Um, it's remarkable that, uh, you know, that there's no question that that perception is broad. I get it every time we talk about the business um, to folks that are outside of the world uh, of email. Mm -hmm. And 
And so totally understandable. You know, I'll hear questions like, well, gosh, you know, my, my teenage kids, you know, they only text, they don't even know what email is, or they're on Snap, or they're on Messenger, or whatever. And so, you know, email must die. And, and uh, you know, look, I, th I think it's still, um, particularly in the Western world, is still the online identifier. It is still the way when you sign up for services, by and large, it's still your email address, the way you don't change your phone number. Uh, you don't change your email address as often as you change your phone number. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, uh, uh, but you probably don't change your email address as often as you change your physical home address, right? I mean, think about, yeah. how, like, I've got the same email addresses for 25 years now. <laughs> but, wow. you know, you don't, right? Like, it's it's not something you um, you change a lot. So, um, well, you guys are sending more emails daily now than tweets on Twitter. Is that a correct stat that I... Over I two times the volume. Over two times so the volume. We send not just over, but more than twice. By a lot. Wow. By factors. Wow. Yeah. So it's 1.3 billion emails every day. Wow. Uh, which is about two times, more than two times the volume of Twitter, about half, which is about half a billion tweets a day. Um, and we're touching 1.7 billion unique email recipients, which is like basically, you know, plus or minus half the world's online population. You know, we're doing that on behalf of nearly 50,000 paying customers. Uh, it's good to have paying customers. Yeah, which is also helpful. <laughs> uh, but, you know, nearly 50,000, you know, you got a, a lot of organizations and companies who still recognize the incredible importance and efficiency of using email as a channel to reach your end users. I mean, so if you talk to, you know, the entrepreneurs and the startup communities that, you know, that, that are listening in here, you know, they know you gotta. You want to keep people engaged. You want to. You want to send out your updates and how are we doing? And hey, I got this new feature. And you know, I got to make sure I'm building a community of people that care about what I'm doing. And email is always going to be one of, at least one of, the major mechanisms or channels through which you do that. And um, does that mean that new modes of communication, whether it's you know a push message to your phone or an in-app message in a mobile app or a browser notification on a desktop? Uh, aren't important, of course not. It, you know, in our our view, it's an and, not an or. Absolutely. You know, uh, but but if you were to ask most marketers, you know, what do you use? What's the most uh, ROI efficient channel for you to use to go reach your your users, subscribers, customers, consumers, whatever um, they're calling it, it? They'll always cite email. Absolutely. Always. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely the most powerful channel for our community. I believe it. I believe it. So, so engaged. Who in your ecosystem, maybe they don't even use SendGrid, but like yeah. what emails, um, well, I don't know if that's possible because it seems like everyone uses SendGrid, <laughs> but who in your ecosystem is doing email marketing right? Mm. It could be a startup, it could be an enterprise company. Yeah, you know, I, I love, um, we have so many great customers to highlight. Uh, you know, some that I think do it really well, um, some of our music customers, Pandora mm. and Spotify. Um, I think do an extraordinary job of leveraging technology to drive engagement and growth within their consumer base. And yeah. at the end of the day, like if you look at the SendGrid mission statement, that what, that's what it says. You won't see the word email in there. It'll say delivering customer communications that drive engagement and growth. And mm -hmm. because the email channel is just the channel, but the end goal that we want to orient the, our entire company around is the reason we do what we do is to help our customers engage and grow their business. Yeah. And so in the case of like a Pandora and a Spotify, what those guys do brilliantly is take in a gazillion different data points. That's a lot of data points. A lot of, I mean, gazillion, <laughs> you know, it's a very technical term. Yeah. A gazillion data points to figure out the next email I'm gonna send Matt about what he should listen to next yeah. is gonna incorporate 
you know, what you've been doing in their app, what songs you're listening into, you know, what, who else does Matt look like and what are they interested in? And then they tailor that email mm -hmm. specifically to you based on everything they know about you. And then they send that through Sendgrid. And I just think, they, you know, of course, everything about it is great in terms of the layout, it's beautiful, the imagery, the, the text, the taglines, and the subject and the subject lines to get you to, to go into it in the first place. Mm -hmm. They do a great job with all that. Uh, but I think that what's most compelling about it is that they've found a way to make it very personal and tailored. And at the end of the day, as we move forward and as uh, to get the most out of this email channel and this generation, it is about being specific it's about feeling like you're getting a personal conversation via that email and you're not one of a lot of people receiving the same generic message yeah. um, I think the people that are using email marketing well are recognizing that I think those are two examples of people that are doing that well I really like those examples because you hit on a couple of things that are obviously important the personalization yeah uh, but then also the intelligence behind it meaning right time yeah uh, so it's not too creepy yeah but because there, there is that element there is right where yeah. it's like I just was in a shopping cart I abandoned it yeah. and now 15 seconds later it's you like come back but <laughs> maybe a little too yeah. maybe a little too uh, in your face yeah. but if I got that same email the next day with say a 10% discount totally fine and that's you know a lot of what we focus on with our customers is we're like look we we believe in this channel. Mm -hmm. We think it's highly effective. Um, you know, Digital Marketing Association cited a stat, they're like, every dollar that you spend an email, you'll get a $38 return on average. Like, I like those returns. It's a highly, highly efficient, <laughs> productive channel, but um, that channel will get destroyed if people are getting spammed, yep. right? If you're getting unwanted mail, you just stop using the medium, right? You stop checking. And so we're really vigilant about our customers sending wanted mail, where we watch their uh, engagement rates, opens and clicks, their unsubscribes. How many people are saying, nope, I didn't want this? What percentage of the time are the ISPs dropping the mail coming in into the spam folder? And if those numbers get out of a very small tolerance, very like single digit, tiny percentages, we will actually terminate customers. We fire 15% of customers of any given cohort in a month. Based on our, our, our view of the signals, you're not demonstrating best practices and how you're using email. It's not engaged, wanted mail. Yeah, and I, I wanna make sure we dive into that because I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've got a ton of perspective yeah. on that from deliverability to uh, engagement. But I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, as a founder, yeah. right? It, maybe at a startup, Email, you're saying, is the most engaged marketing channel. I, I would corroborate that. Yeah. But as a founder, I'm making sure payroll happens. I'm yeah. making sure yeah. uh, you know people are, are getting engaged with the company, yeah. making sure customers are taken care of. <laughs> and you're telling me I need to also do email marketing. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about how startups can start to leverage email marketing if they're not doing it, or maybe they're barely doing it. Yeah, just getting started. You know, one of the things we're, we're doing a lot, and, and SendGrid is a company that literally was built on startups. Yeah. Like that's how uh, we, it, and they remain our lifeblood. So it came out of Techstars Accelerator, right? We started as a, yeah. as, you know, obviously a startup ourselves, 2009 through Techstars, incredible uh, kind of training program for our founders who are three developers who faced the same problem. They were trying to get started up. And what they, the, the experience they had had in previous companies that, that perhaps some of your listeners might have uh, experienced back in the day was every single application you build, every website, e-commerce, anything you're gonna go try to do, um, 
is going to have to communicate with the user in an automated fashion. And so these developers were like, God, you know, we wanted to build this e-commerce business back in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. And I had to make sure that when they signed in, I could send them a confirmation email. If they forgot their password, when you hit that forgot password button, the app has to do something. It has to yep. send an email back. Or if they click buy, it has to send them a, a, a receipt, right? Like in, in order to do that, they had to go set up the email infrastructure on the back end and the complexity of that is just bizarrely, you would just wouldn't think that that's, why would that be a hard thing to do? You gotta go set up servers and understand the SMTP protocol and understand what an SPF record is and what does DKIM signing mean? And like literally, it's like <laughs> yeah. this random, yeah. you know, black art of email. Yeah. <laughs> the average developer, to your point, and founder that's trying to build a business could care less about. They're like, I don't wanna learn all this random esoteric email crap. I just wanna get the email. I want it to work. I just want it to work. I just wanna yeah. get there. And so the founders are like, okay. I gotta get this right. We're gonna expose our API as a service. So the founders and developers, like your uh, and and um, uh, startup CEOs uh, in your listener base, are like, okay, we gotta make this simple so that it's just not a. They need to worry about all the other things you described. Yeah. Not making sure that the email gets to the inbox it, at a basic level for transactional stuff. And so where we start with startups always is plug our API in for the automated system generated emails. It takes no human involvement, and I know you've got 90 other things to do, so just make sure your developer plugs in our API in the back end so that anytime they're doing something um, on your site or in your app and uh, that can be a system-triggered thing. Now, as you as the startup kind of moves along its life cycle and CEO starts to, you know, what the idea is taking fold, then, then it really is now, okay, now I can take advantage of this channel. How do I start to engage people in and around this business, my customer base, either for acquisition or retention. And that's really how you think, you know, I kind of split it into those two buckets. So are you going to use the channel to acquire more customers? Uh, or is it about those that have already been engaging with you and you want to retain them and get them to come back and buy more yep. uh, or engage more? Uh, obviously, we believe you ought to use the email channel for both. And it's just a question of where you are in your life cycle for a startup. You're probably going to be um, very focused on the acquisition side. How do I get more people into the house to understand what I'm doing? Yeah. And then over time, use retention. So we added a capability on top of our um, automated system-generated uh, API-based infrastructure that is a email marketing application. And so that thing is just super simple for developers, um, uh, sorry, CEOs and founders, like literally startup CEOs. We have a person. We everything we do at Sanger we do by personas. Yeah. Right? User personas. Let's build for that person. So we have a persona named Jared, who is our startup CEO. Um, that's and good. We build, and Jared is one of the profiles that we build this email marketing product for because we know they have 18 other things to go do. Right. They can go into that tool and create simple buckets or segments of people that they want to message to and send campaigns to. And then the tool just makes it really easy to go look at who's engaging and when and takes care of it. It's all dynamic. So it, it makes it easy so that a startup CEO founder that's got a lot on their plate doesn't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I would encourage them to spend some time on it. So I love that you have the email tools for Jared. Yeah. When did you launch that part of SendGrid? Yeah. Historically, it's been mostly email tools, right? That's right. It's more email. API based. That's right. So that you're absolutely right. So that, by the way, that persona, Dewey, we call it Dewey the developer. Nice. And Dewey the developer. Like alliteration. Yeah. yeah. Dewey the developer was the uh, has been the core of the business for many years around that API. So they plug our API into the back of their application. So it's literally embedding in their code. And that, that really has been the history of the company. 
about maybe a year and a half ago now, okay. uh, we launched this email marketing product on top of this infrastructure. And I have to apologize, I missed that when that happened. So it was, it was, it was only in researching this you know, we interview did, that I discovered. Yeah, wow, they okay. do some marketing stuff too. And, yeah. and we, we've been, um, you know, it's, we're, we're just starting to dial up the noise around what we've done here. We're really excited about it. We've already signed up uh, over 5,000 customers. That's great. <laughs> on, Congrats. <laughs> thanks, man. It's been great on, on top of, on that new product. Yeah. And what's even more remarkable is that the vast majority of those customers are actually net new to SendGrid. So it's not that they were using our API product and then this thing came along like, oh, I'll use that too. That's happening in reasonable percentages also. Yep. But the majority have never, we're not, are new to SendGrid. We're not using the, because they were, you know, the Dewey, the developer, they don't know Dewey, the developer. Yeah. The developers down the hall. They don't like marketing. <laughs> uh, so the, the marketers are finding this tool and saying, oh, this is a beautiful, simple, easy to use product. It's a great value. And because of SendGrid's heritage in the infrastructure side, we can do scale and reliability in a fairly unique way. Right, there's just like not that many. Two extreme, you kind of glossed over it, but yeah. those are like the most important things in email, right? <laughs> yeah, well, our, our and scale and reliability, well, deliverability being kind of synonymous. Well, and, and yeah, absolutely, and we and we leverage all of that expertise, I would say, that we've developed over the past seven years. All the relationships we have with the ISPs, all the knowledge of what best practices are, all the guardrails and defenses that we put in place against mm -hmm. bad senders, against spammers and fishers, all of that is 100% leverageable into that new category around email marketing. That's great. Uh, and so we, and for B2C marketers in particular, who want to be able to do scale, yeah. we, could do, we could do scale for them. What they consider scale is typically very small for us. Right, <laughs> right. right. Like we have right. customers that would send over a billion emails every month. That's great. <laughs> so, you know, whatever list size they have is not going to strain the system problem. at all. <laughs> so. It, Going into a new product, in some ways, is a new product, right? Because you've got a new customer. It is. Persona, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yep. and, and you've got to develop this brand awareness around mm -hmm. an entirely different thing where, yeah. you know, you used to see only, you know, SendGrid only at like hackathons right. and more developer-oriented yeah. conferences yeah. in terms of marketing. I'm seeing, you know, SendGrid in some places. It, you know, it all makes sense now yeah. why I've been seeing SendGrid more frequently because yep. I'm... I'm Jared, right? Right. I'm not Dewey, the developer. That's right. Um, and so I was like, "Why? <laughs> That's like, why working. Why am I doing that?" But what the challenge there being? Yeah. You've got this really strong brand on the developer tools Absolutely. front. Yeah. How how are you going about extending that into? Oh, but we're also good for marketers. Yeah. I, it's a great uh, it's a great question because one we it's very important to the business that we retain the strength of our um, focus on and brand in the Dewey the developer world. Like that has always been um, SendGrid's uh, bread and butter and there's no chance that we're gonna relinquish that. That is, you know, the dance with the one that brung you. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we're not gonna forget who, who got us here. Yeah, uh, so we continue to invest an extraordinary amount in the Dewey the developer landscape. Now, to your question, how do you then leverage that strength and that brand uh, in a, with a different persona, in a different buyer, in a different market? Uh, okay, that's that can be tough. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that, that we love about it is, as I said, that the leverage we get. One, the the leverage in the brand is still there's an, there's a hate a brand halo around SendGrid and email. And people do when they think when they hear SendGrid, the first thing they will think 
is email not developed? Yep. It'll probably be a developer thinking that. <laughs> sure. But there's a halo around the notion of email. And even for the, you know, the tens of thousands of companies that use us, when we go and meet with many of them, I'll end up going in and meeting. I remember when I first joined the company, it was about two and a half years ago. You know, of course, the first thing you do as a CEO, you say, I want to go talk to customers. Yeah. And I hear how we're doing, what are we doing great, what do we need to get better at? And they set up the meetings, and so I'm assuming I'm going to go step in and meet lots of Jareds, yeah. lots of Deweys, right? And it turned out that I met lots of Olivias. Olivia is our multi-hatted marketer persona. Uh, okay. And I, we met lots of Olivias. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And they said, well, yeah, yeah, Dewey set you guys up when we were, you know, a startup, five guys in a garage. But ultimately, somewhere in the company's life cycle, they hired me, Olivia, the marketer, because the business was taking off and we needed to be more proactive about our marketing communications. And I said, well, what are we doing to communicate with our end users? And they usually said, well, not much, but we are using sending these emails, system-generated emails, yes. through SendGrid. So they, so the Olivias know who we are kind of in that hate brand halo yep. of, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think our Dewey set you guys up, and, and it just works. And those, I, you know, there's no better uh, phrase to a <laughs> yeah, CEO when you hear your customer say, oh, yeah, our other guys, so they just say, it just works. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, so you get this very positive disposition there. Now, in order to really leverage it, we clearly got to go, we're going to have to do a lot more marketing. <laughs> so we're, we're dialing up uh, our spend, our volume, our presence, um, and language around the marketing persona. Like, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that we're building a multi-hundred million dollar business with our Dewey the Developer API in, uh, transactional email business. We're going to build a multi-hundred million dollar business around email marketing yeah. that is right on top of it. And when you say that multi-hundred million, are you talking about total valuation? Like, do you see this as a billion dollar company? Or do you see this as, you know, another metric that you're shooting for? Yeah, no, I, I believe that these are these are big markets mm -hmm. that give us the opportunity to build towards, and this is a decade-long vision, right? Sure. Not a, this is not the kind of thing that you expect to hit next year. It's your BHAG. <laughs> it's our BHAG. Yeah. Um, but I, I, and I told the company we have our annual kickoff um, every year we go to Mexico. Uh, we take the entire company down and uh, get everybody to both celebrate what we accomplished together yeah. in the last year and get aligned on the plan and the strategy and the initiatives that we got to execute in the, in the next year. And as part of that, that trip and that messaging, we've got to move beyond a, a view towards a BHAG that was, let's create a, a billion dollar valuation company towards a BHAG of, we're going to go create a billion dollar revenue company. Wow. And it's going to take us a decade or more. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to take us, but that's where we're going because the markets that we play in now and that we can envision extending to over the future we'll absolutely be able to build a billion dollar revenue company. It's on us. Yeah. Opportunity's there, yep. and you know whether we get there or not is entirely dependent on our execution, um, but, the, but the opportunity is there. It's an exciting goal. Yeah. And I, wa I wanna come back to the team, team section of, of what you just yeah. talked about, because taking the whole team of what, like 350 employees yeah. uh, to Mexico is, um, I don't think every tech company is doing that kind of a retreat. <laughs> Uh, so I want to make sure we talk sure. about that. Yeah. And we talked a lot about the markets, right? Yeah. And how the market is moving. Um, are there other markets, maybe in entirely different industries, maybe it's not even in tech, hmm. that you could correlate to how email is evolving in the marketing yeah. world? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the macro storyline, uh, or, or I guess picture that, that I, I orient to, and again, shared with our uh, the whole company when we talked uh, 
at our kickoff was about the history of enterprise software. So, you know, if I zoom out for a little bit on, yeah. to your point about like how other markets evolve and how is that, how can that be instructive to uh, SendGrid and our strategy? Um, you know, in the macro, uh, when I, if you take a look at enterprise software of the last 30, 40 years, it has had a history of creating multiple multi-billion dollar revenue businesses within every business function. Okay, so it started off in like in the late 60s when computers actually were becoming useful and not taking up whole rooms like this. Right. They're like, hey, what are you, these computer things you're good at? Oh, they're pretty good at math. They're zeros and ones. How can we apply that to business? Well, accounting is all about lots of math, and we got lots of people with pencils behind their ears. Let's go. <laughs> let's go see if we can automate some of this stuff. And so every company started to build homegrown accounting software. And then this company called McCormick and Dodge came along in the late 60s. And like, hey, we're going to go build a single one, and it's going to be great because we'll get feedback from all of these companies and it'll always our pace of innovation will be faster than your homegrown thing it's sort of the the business case for why enterprise software should exist that began the birth of enterprise software and they went through literally function by function so back then it was accounting was first and then you know oracle financials you know n number of years later becomes a multi-billion dollar business and and, and it just goes in subsequent generations where you end up with the paypals and the stripes and the anaplans and adaptive insights and yeah there's a whole uh, it just the innovation continues and generation after generation that's usually about every decade or every 10 to 15 years yeah. a new crop of multi-billion dollar businesses is created in these functions so first finance mm -hmm. then HR right so uh, McCormick and Dodge late 60s then they're like oh hey these computers are getting better at routine things like routinized tasks and they can store data Somebody said, hey, how about payroll? That's a, like, that's a routine thing, happens every month. And uh, we can store this information instead of in files, filing cabinets, you know, where we're gonna put this in the computer. This is really nice. This is really, this is, hey, this is kinda cool. Yeah. And, you, and an ADP type company is born. ADP and Reynolds and Reynolds both become multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. And then another guy named Dave Duffield comes along, you know, 15 years later and he's like, hey, there are all these other HR processes. I'm gonna go build a company around that called PeopleSoft. And then he gets acquired in work, and he's like, I'm going to go do this again. <laughs> Next generation, we're going to go create Workday, right? And so it's just generation after generation. So you go through function by function, whether it's in finance, HR, sales, is when I joined in enterprise software in the mid-90s. There were like hundreds of little Salesforce automation tools. Yep. And a, a company called Salesforce, Fever. the category, not Salesforce, the company. That's right. Sales, yeah, <laughs> sales as a function, but yeah, I should say. Sales as a function, um, they looked at, and, and there's a lot of Salesforce um, tools like a sales rep being able to track their conversations mm -hmm. instead of them writing it down in a notebook now they were going to store it in a in a little tool on on their giant desktop yeah <laughs> which is what most people had back then out of that emerged a company called Siebel Siebel became a multi-billion dollar revenue company and then you know a guy over uh, down the road uh, named Mark Benioff saw what they were doing and said hey how about if I do that but I'm gonna do it as a rented thing from my own data centers and they won't have to worry about it anymore. And we'll call that salesforce.com. And so you build another multi-billion dollar revenue company. Oh. And then you get to marketing. And then you're like, okay, so who, what are the multi-billion dollar revenue companies in the marketing function of business? Well, you could certainly say Google, Facebook, right, in terms of advertising dollars. Yep. 
you know, first one to go down. By the way, biggest line item in marketing spends, advertising. Sure. Not surprising to me that that's the one that went out first. And it's sort of like the HR one. You're like, okay, so what about all the other marketing processes? And so you have lots of companies that have been going down that path. Exact targets, responses, uh, Marketo, HubSpot, fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, lots of M&A around this activity. Salesforce buys uh, exact target, Oracle buys responses, and Marketo goes private, and IBM buys Silverpop, and it, so this, you know, Adobe's picked up a bunch of assets. And so it's not lost on people that this is where the, the next major multi-billion dollar enterprise software companies will come from. Um, we just think there's a great opportunity um, over a decade-long journey to go create to create the equipment. Well, and it's cool that you're paying attention to trends outside of marketing to see you know how is this market moving yeah. in similar I, patterns. Are there certain books that you've read or um, people you've talked to that have, have kind of instilled this interest uh, and knowledge in the history of software? You know, I, uh, I've been blessed to have had great mentors. My first. CEO and, and um, mentor, the company I joined straight out of college is called Trilogy, and um, the founder CEO there, a guy named Joe Lemont, uh, a brilliant businessman, uh, best software operating man uh, executive I've ever ever seen mm. um, by far. And um, why? What made what made him such a good operator? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll come. That that would be a long conversation. Sure, sure. Show, but he he uh, but he was a he was a student of history. He. Uh, of and, and a student of enterprise software history, okay. knew a lot, and so when we were, you know, 21 years old, coming into enterprise software in the mid 90s, 1995, um, he would give us talks, lectures on. Let me tell you about the history of these other companies that came before us, and that's really cool. And so I've, you know, I've always had that great luxury um, of uh, of learning from software leaders generations uh, ago that would then explain what happened before and what they think is going to happen next and then you live through the rest of it and you start to kind of form your form your opinion but you know things that uh, uh, made made Joe a distinctive uh, software operator I think he was he's always and I say businessman in particular because Joe always had a great quote and I hope this is one that many of your listeners will take to heart uh, which was uh, smear profitability is a choice it is not an outcome Mm. And uh, he was incredibly disciplined about building a a great business. And um, I thought it was all about just user growth at all costs. <laughs> well, that's you know this, and that is some of the differences in the way that um, software and tech companies have been built. And you know, look, so there are certain situations where I guess user growth um, and eyeballs matter. If it's going to get monetized via an ad model, maybe that's the right approach. Um, in traditional enterprise software businesses. Um, Keeping your eye on your acquisition costs, sales and marketing spend relative to your profitability and not burning a ton of cash in that process is just good business. It's just, you know, is it a more conservative way to build a business? One might say yes. I'll tell you, I saw, I've, I've seen lots of people do that very, very successfully. And what that allows you to do, if you've been through a couple cycles, you know, yeah, I don't know how many of, the, of your listeners went through the, the Great Recession of 2008 or were there for the dot-com bust in 99-2000 or 2001, you got to be able to weather those cycles. That's not a, that's, those aren't uh, ifs, those are whens. Yep. When is the next one and is your business prepared to withstand that? You know, I had uh, one of the guys on, on Joe's team, a mentor, was a CFO, and he said, you know, Samir, building businesses is really hard. <laughs> we will make mistakes, um, lots of mistakes. 
because you're you're in a world of unknowns. Your your listenership, I'm sure, will relate to that. Uh, he said, "There's only one mistake in business you cannot come back from. Do you know what that is?" And I thought long and hard. I said, "What is the one mistake in business you cannot recover from?" I couldn't think of it. And he said, "Running out of cash. <laughs> Every other mistake you make, you can fix. Truly. Yeah. But you run out of cash, and it's game over." Cash is king. Cash is king. And so anyways, uh, I learned a lot of de- great lessons uh, from, from Joe and my trilogy days uh, and, and many mentors uh, subsequent to that. But, but anyways, that's where the, the history of enterprise software and that yeah. passion came, came from Joe. Well, I think that's fascinating. Do you, have a, do you have a favorite history book? It doesn't even have to be about software. Oh. Or documentary, or oh, see, yeah, I love them all. Yeah, uh, like some of the, like the Ken Burns documentaries. Those are amazing. Uh, are awesome. I love, uh, uh, you know, I, I I do I love reading the stories of um, um, leaders and um, like biographies of various kinds. You know, so like one I'm reading right now that I highly recommend to people. I haven't even quite finished it yet. I've got a couple more chapters. Is uh, Shoe Dog. Um, yes, the, the memoir of, of Phil Knight. I read the middle of that one all myself. All of those are just great. They're, they're just instructive. Yeah, right? you hear from people who have been fortunate to have accomplished great things, and I think that anyone in the one of the things, by the way, that I love in reading those histories is that the best among them will invariably talk about how they were fortunate that these other external factors. Uh, all came together in a confluence of events that they couldn't have orchestrated themselves. They were outside of their control, but thank goodness that they did, <laughs> and because it was a platform for us to go and accomplish X, Y, and Z. Um, there's a deep humility that I find in reading the bios of the greatest leaders, because they all recognize it wasn't just them. <laughs> as great of a leader as they were, it wasn't them. Why else do you think it's important to be humble, whether you're a leader or a, or a teammate or... Um, an investor. Well, you know, I, gosh, I tell you, I think um, uh, with experience, <laughs> I think life humbles us all. Sure. Um, we find uh, we will all all hit challenges, personal or professional, that you you realize how um, how little you do control, um, how things do uh, are are outside of your control, how. Sometimes, um, despite best efforts, things won't play out your way. I think that the humility that, that comes with that is an important recognition, I think, one, for sanity. Frankly, you know, I was a, I remember when I did my first startup, I was, a, I was a CEO of a 20, 30-person company that later got acquired. But, boy, I tell you, there were some dark days in the middle of that, of that effort. And it was really important um, to not internalize that as, I suck. I am failing. Right, and because and, you feel that way, and I'm, and I'm sure your listeners that have been started or are or have been startup um, CEOs and founders will, will relate to this. Uh, it's, it, it, can, it can lead to depression, it can lead to scary places, and you've got to have a humility to understand your place in all this. Yeah. You're, you're trying to create change in a world of chaos, um, lots of things that you don't control. So, anyway, so I think that's one dimension to the humility that I think is helpful for, for a CEO founder. Another is just I do, I believe it engenders um, uh, the right kind of culture and team dynamics, uh, at least for, for me. For, and, the, and this is a personal choice. You know, different people have different personalities. There's no one right way to build culture. There's no one right way to build a company. Um, uh, 
for, for me, like at SendGrid, you know, the, the humble H is literally built into our value system. We call them the four H's. Uh, happy, hungry, humble, and honest are the, our four H's. And I think our humble H as a company, frankly, is the most distinctive characteristic of the company, yeah. of all the people that we hire into the company. And um, I think they appreciate that uh, their leaders, from the CEO to the executive team to the senior, you know, the VPs and the senior directors, that everyone understands that we actually are there to serve them. That the individual employees of our company, 350 of them, you know, there are probably 20 or 30 of us that are what I describe as we're not at the top of the org chart. We're at the bottom of the pyramid, right? We're, we're there to support them doing their best work. That's right? an we, interesting reframe. We, we have to, you know, it's, uh, and, uh, I can't remember the name of the book offhand now, but the concept of servant leadership yep. is... It might just be called servant leadership. Maybe that is yeah. the name of the book, but, but that concept is very powerful, and I think, I think is the right way for leaders, again... For me, works for, you. works for me. Yeah. Uh, to think about um, your job and your role is, you know, you got to have, you know, at the bottom, you got to have the rudder, uh, the the oar that you know you're you're steering. You got to make sure you're pointing pointing the ship into the right into the right markets. You're making the, the strategic decisions. You're making sure you got the right financing. You're not going to run out of cash. You're building the right unit economic model. All those things are are on you as as the leadership team, but. Um, but the people that deal with the real work every day in your company are the people that are picking up the phone and dealing with an unhappy customer on a support call. It's the sales rep that's got a quota to hit to bring in new customers. It's the, the marketing team that's got to go get the word out about, hey, we got a new product and the world doesn't know that yet. They're the ones who do the real work of the company every day. And our job's got to be, how do we remove obstacles that get in their way? How do we support them? How do we get them the resources they need, the work environment they need, the culture that they want to be in so that they can go and have a career high, so they can go do their best work. So that's how, hey, if you do that as a leader, the rest of the shit takes care of itself, right? It's, you know, the Bill Walsh, you know, great football quote, coach said, the scoreboard will take care of itself if you do those types of things. <laughs> yep. If you have great in excellence at the individual level, that will lead to excellence at the team level, that will lead to excellence at the program level. And that's... I think that is every bit as true in business as it is in sports. I, I like the focus and intention around the team. I, yeah. I imagine um, in some of those moments when you mentioned some of your darker days in that early yeah. startup, 20 to 30 people. Yeah. Um, was there a, can you remember a specific moment when you were humbled and maybe uh, a little less happy <laughs> uh, yeah. in, in that first startup? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, we were looking at, um, uh, you know, the specific example, we were is um, 2007, companies taken off, new customers signed, and like, you know, we were, had come out of the gates, new customers were adopting quickly, lots of interest from partners and strategics around what we were doing, we were building this disruptive technology. This is back in the virtualization software um, okay. market, and uh, things, everything was up and to the right, just Everything was exactly as we had planned. You know, we're hitting our numbers. Everything's feeling great, and uh, we're in negotiations. Um, meet, like literally nine months in to get acquired by a company that um, could give us incredible distribution. Uh, and it's the summer of 2008, and we're negotiating the deal. And for anybody who remembers their history, back to history, we'll remember Lehman Brothers happening in September of 08, and. Um, 
and everything falls apart. Now, we had built our plan, assuming, you know, we, we were then investing. That right? contingency wasn't built into the plan. I had forgotten <laughs> Joe's very important lesson. Yeah. I hadn't internalized it deeply enough. And so all of a sudden now we were in a financing crunch of, because it was the great recession. recession. Cash. And, we, and we could, you know, like, well, we still had enough because you know, I learned it enough to not, it wasn't going to happen in the next few months, but it was going to happen in the next, you know, nine to 12 if we didn't come up with a solution. That's scary. Um, and it was, a, it was a, those were dark days because you, you know, again, having lived through the dot-com bust in 2001, 2002, I knew when Lehman happened and this in the fall of 08, I'm like, oh, this is not going to be short-lived. This is not that we're going to be in this for a while. I got to figure out an answer, and it wasn't clear what the answer was going to be. We figured out an answer. It worked. It ended up working out great. But, but well, talk to me about that because yeah. a lot of times you 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 see point A, yeah, scared, humbled, yeah, and point B, happy. We found an answer and a solution. Yeah. What what were some of the mental games that you did <laughs> with yourself as an operator? Yeah. To to get out of that. Well, you know, uh, it's. The, you know, the two things you have to do, I think, in, in a situation like that, that we, we were fortunate enough to be able to execute. One was you get very disciplined on your costs and your spend and everything about that, which we did. Um, and then the other is you get very creative and you try to find, okay, what else can, what, what else could we do? There was no VC in the fall of 2008 that was going <laughs> to fund anything. Right? Like there's no, there, the VC market shut down, the doors are closed. And so now you got to figure out how else you're going to go do it. Um, you can drive your cost, you know, cost containment's gonna help you drive towards uh, a cash flow neutral situation, but not, you're not gonna get there overnight um, unless you're willing to, to do something really dramatic, which we still believed in the business, so we weren't. Um, and in our case, uh, we got creative. So in our case, we went back to the strategic acquirer we were talking to and said, hey, we both wanna get married. We can't get married now, so let's get engaged. Hmm. And our need right now is capital your need remains interest in our product and technology. Instead of a marriage, we'll do a, a, a prepaid royalty-based OEM software deal. You can white label our product and send it through your distribution channels every time you do, uh, but you're gonna give us capital up front and then we'll decrement um, how the, the prepayment. Oh, that is creative. So you get, you get creative, you figure yeah. out ways of doing it, but um, but there, but it's not easy, and I'll tell you. In between, the, you know, I just summarized that in three minutes. There's probably about six months, nine months, of um, of pain <laughs> and dark days around. Yeah, it, I bet it felt good together. to get out of the valley. It did, it did. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when when I talk about life humbling you, it makes you appreciate the good times all the more. Yep, that much happier. That much happier. That much happier. So when things are you know, uh, everything is up into the right. You're like, wow, this is really special. I'm gonna enjoy this. Yeah, because you know that there's possibility is always around the corner, so you better keep. Uh, it, it keeps you both enjoying it, and it keeps you with a healthy bit of paranoia to make sure that you're looking for what could be around the corner uh, this time that I wasn't prepared for last time. Well, I'm sure that your experience and your studying of history um, and everything you've done to prepare yourself for this particular venture that you're leading is has a lot to do with. Sangrid being up into the right. Well, I I, I appreciate that. I, I, I wish I I would say the the company. I, I this is one I feel fortunate to have joined. Yep. Um, uh, a company that had so many of the fundamentals right long before I got here. What were the fundamentals that they had right? Uh, the two that I would focus on, I would say, are um, 
the business model slash uh, unit economics, okay, uh, and the two, and the second one is the culture. So, um, uh, and these are two things that I remember when I when I was uh, doing diligence on whether or not I should join the company because when you do, you know, when you become the CEO of a company like this, as you, as you know, for any time you're in that CEO spot. Uh, it becomes personal. It becomes a thing that you're taking on. So you do a lot of homework before you sign yeah, up sure. for that. Um, and uh, I fell in love with SendGrid with head and heart. Um, the head on the analytically, the, the business yeah. was extraordinary. Uh, the, the, the thing that it makes the model remarkable, one, of course, it's, it's a SaaS-based business, which is dramatically better than the enterprise software perpetual uh, license and maintenance model of, of what I grew up in for the first 20 years. So, yeah. so that was an improvement unto itself. But, but moreover, even better than that, um, Syngrid's business model enjoys uh, a couple aspects of it that solve for the biggest problems of most SaaS companies. Hmm. So most SaaS companies struggle with two, two challenges. One is CAC, your customer acquisition costs. The percent of your revenue that you have to spend in sales and marketing is oftentimes half, like 50%. Some, some more, maybe some a little bit less, but that's probably around you know, 40, 40 to 50% is probably the median spend. At least uh, for the healthy companies. For those healthy companies. Yeah. And, um, and that leads to a very difficult situation because now it's hard to be profitable. If you're spending that much in sales and marketing, uh, you know, that, that, that's a tough place. Um, uh, the second problem that most SaaS companies wrestle with is uh, a leaky bucket problem. Tell me about that. So, uh, on the sales and marketing problem, and I'll explain how SendGrid's different on both of those dimensions. So on the, on the CAC and the sales and marketing spend, SendGrid is spending probably half of what the average SaaS company does and it's in sales and marketing. Yeah. And it's because our model is a self-service one. Like our developers and now even our marketers, they come and find our solution. They've got a pain point. They're out searching for a solution. Exactly. You guys, or we're one of the first in that marketplace yeah. to really service that. That's right. And they so they come and find us. We're not doing expensive field sales organizations, six to twelve month sales cycles. You know the traditional stuff that and that even SaaS companies today selling into the enterprise often deal with. Mm. Um, because we're serving SMB mid market, um, we don't. So our, our costs are dramatically lower, um, and so that allows us to be. Um, on a, uh, uh, allow us to achieve profitability at a very early stage relative to most SaaS companies. Um, on the, the second one, that leaky bucket problem. Uh, the leaky bucket problem for a SaaS company is if, if you take any given cohort and say, I signed up this many customers in the month of January of 2016. Mm -hmm. A year later, January 2017, the metrics that most SaaS companies would look at is, A, what percentage of those accounts, logos, are still with me and how many have churned? Yep. And then of those that are still there, how much are they spending with us relative to how much they were spending with us a year prior? Um, the leaky bucket problem is that on a dollar basis, most SaaS companies are making a little bit less from that cohort a year later. And so then what you're trying to do is you're trying to either cross-sell them or upsell them or get them to expand in some way to get it back to break even because otherwise the only way to make up for that leaky bucket is I just have to keep spending more in sales and marketing to get more people in the top of the bucket, right? To make up for what's fallen out in the bottom of the bucket. Um, SendGrid, by virtue of a transaction-based pricing model, doesn't have uh, the same challenge. Yeah. Because those customers, we do, we have plenty of people, customers who leave the system, either because we asked them to, back to my original 
determination of bad senders comment, um, or because uh, you know their startup doesn't work out, or they get merged or acquired, and they're using some other thing, etc. Um, but those who stay are sending so much more in volume, and they're thus paying us more because our pricing is tied to how much they are paying or how much they're sending. That we actually, on a dollar basis, are making more, not less. That's a beautiful thing, and that is a beautiful thing. So you have efficient acquisition with an inherent growth vehicle for your cohort. It just builds a. There's an inherent growth model built into the business. Well, if they're using your email marketing tools, your product is actually helping them spend more money with you. Absolutely. By helping them grow as a company. Absolutely. Then sending more transactional emails. And it's this great virtuous cycle. And so, so it, it kind of analytically, I love the business. Yeah. I love the business model, and that was right be- long before I got here. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very you know grateful to our founders and the um, the initial management team that took the company from two million in revenue to forty when I joined. Yeah. Um, they did an extraordinary job with those things. The other thing they got incredibly right, which I was happy to join, and frankly I wouldn't have come to the company if I didn't so deeply believe um, in the culture. And that's the heart, and that's the hard part, yeah. head and heart. You know, I fell in love with, I fell in, literally fell in love with the company because of those four values, those those H's, yeah. happy, hungry, humble, and honest, each of those resonated with me. We were talking about mentors earlier. I had a, a mentor uh, at Citrix, uh, the company I was at just before I joined, uh, Sengrid, who's the CEO there named Mark Templeton. And Mark was a deeply, he's an extraordinary business leader. He take, built the business from 50 million in revenue to a two and a half, three billion dollar company over the span wow. of two decades. Like, in ex- and there are so few human beings on the planet who can scale through all the different challenges that occur through those different life cycles. So an incredible businessman, an incredible leader, uh, but also just an incredible human being. And uh, he was a deeply humble person. Hmm. Uh, and I'll never forget the, you know, the example that always just is so stark in my mind was, um, and he would never even probably remember this, but we were at our uh, annual co- uh, customer event, you know, 5,000 people come in to hear about the future of the company. and. We have our customer advisory board, you know, the top CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that we're serving, and he's standing at the buffet line at lunch, handing them their plates as they are coming through the line. And he never had to say what was obvious to everybody, which was, I am here to serve you. Well, not just, you know, physically, metaphorically, in every way, we are here to serve you as customers. And that humility permeated our company this is by the way, Citrix was a 7,000 person company at the time. Yeah. It permeated the company, and I, and I assure you that the company's success was in no small part due to that culture and channel partners and customers wanting Citrix to be successful because they appreciated the humility. It was the antithesis of so many other tech software companies who thought it was all about them yeah. and that it was about their growth and what a rocket ship they were. And, it wasn't about serving the customer. So anyways, these, these values that, that um, uh, my predecessor and the founding management team imbued in the, into this company just deeply resonated with me. I saw the power of how uh, humble H can matter to a business and to a, a company that I wanted to work at. How do you try to teach or cultivate or empower the leaders at Sangria to be more humble? 
Uh, we talk about it a lot. We talk, <laughs> and it sounds funny. Well, uh, you brought it up before you even brought up the, the four H's. So yeah, uh, you know, it, 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 it's just so so core to what we do. I think um, uh, it's it gets so baked in from everything in our interviewing process. We have people that are assigned to interview for each of the H's, um, and so we have questions that will try to suss out: um, are, are they are kind of humble H or not? Yeah. When they're describing their accomplishments off of their resume, is it I or was it we? Just, and literally just the pronoun difference. Yeah. As they're describing their achievements, tells you a lot about their mindset yeah. <laughs> of, of where they where they are. Um, we hand out uh, at our monthly meetings, um, all hands meetings, uh, our 4-H awards. And the 4-H awards are... Um, the, gen, the, the origins of them are peers nominating their, their peers of people that they believe are uh, exhibiting those 4-H values. And, we do, and they do, we do videos of the nominations of the people that are saying, hey, you know, Carolyn exhibited, let me tell you an example of how Carolyn exhibited our 4-Hs. I just love working with her for these reasons. And this is, she uh, has been a great steward of our culture. And and we play those videos for the entire company to see. And so they realize this isn't lip service. Like, we believe in these values deeply. We interview against them. We celebrate them. We use them in, in language in our meetings. Yeah. We will fire against them. Like, you know, one of the things in the humble age that's hard is you, we lo will lose very talented people. Who are not humble age? They're, they're, they're very there are talented some people in the software industry that don't have the humble age, and they you know they're very talented, and frankly they know it. Yeah, and they know it, and that's a yeah. hard thing. Um, and so uh, you know we've had some very very talented people that it's like Oregon rejection inside of Sanford. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, this is just not going to work. Yeah, <laughs> so but it probably equally doesn't work for you as it doesn't work. That's right. And that, and by the way, that is the key for all of the, all your listeners, I believe, around around culture, uh, is that it has to have some edge to it. If the culture you have defined would be awesome and amazing for everyone you know, then it's motherhood and apple pie. You've put no edge around it. You haven't carved out a culture that is distinctive, and you can't think of a company that is world class that doesn't have a distinctive culture. Think, of, think about Apple's culture. Yeah. Think about Amazon's culture. Think about Nike's culture. Yeah. Those are cultures that are distinctive, and frankly, there are lots of people who would hate them. Polarizing. Very polarizing. Yeah. And believe me, I know very lots and lots of very talented software professionals who would hate working at Sengrid. It would be seventh health for them. And, and that's good. Yeah. Because that means there's a self-selection mechanism towards this is the kind of environment we want to be in. Yeah. And I think that's that's hugely important uh, to set up in, in any any culture you're, you're building. Well, it's clear that you've got a powerful culture and just a crazy momentum behind what you're doing. What's next for you and, and, and what's next for Sangrid? I'll, I'll ask the question that I'm sure you get asked in every interview, but um, what are you most excited about right now? Uh, I, I am most excited about the fact that um, we are hitting on all cylinders right now. Yeah. We have a team that genuinely loves working with each other. You know, I, I, I describe like falling in love with it head and heart, uh, the hard part. I, I've been in places where, where people view their job as a job, and I view, and, and the people they work with are, are coworkers or colleagues, 
and I've been in places where people come in and view their work as a joy and the people they work with as teammates and friends. And I'll tell you the difference between A and B <laughs> night and day. Night and day. Yep. Um, so I love that we have that is um, that is working and is scaling. And I'll tell you this, that's the hardest part is scaling a culture. Um, and so far, you know, we're scaling that culture. I'm really excited and proud of that. What, what gets me most excited, I guess, is all the things we haven't done yet. You know, like we, all these things, we're hitting on all these cylinders, and yet I wake up every morning jumping out of bed thinking about the other eight things we can go do. Man, we got to go faster. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I get fired up. I do. There's lots we can go do still. And the, and the focus, there are eight other things you can do in that day. Yeah. And as an executive, uh, I, I think I'd almost like to close on this, get an idea of how you're starting your day and plotting your day because you could do eight different things, yeah. but you probably can only do a handful yeah. if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, how are you going through that, that process and how, how might some of our listeners, whether they're a CEO or not? Yeah. By the way, this, is, this was a, um, uh, a, a tip that another mentor of mine, uh, who's actually currently a, a board member, my first boss out of college is now one of our VCs. That's so pretty that's cool. Pretty great. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I remember, you know, very in my early twenties as a the first product manager at the software company, and same thing. Even then, like in any role, you're oh, there's always more you can do. How do you prioritize your time? That's the most important thing that you can do. I, I appreciate you sharing that because uh, from afar, uh, sometimes the uh, executive at the top of the mountain. Uh, it seems like they got it all together and, and they've got it all figured out. Uh, so I, 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 I also struggle with that, but on a much smaller scale as we're, we're still a small company. But uh, it's good to hear that there's some similarities in terms of focus. It, honestly, and it's, it's not going to go away. It's all the same. I'm not kidding. From when you're an individual contributor and 22 years old to when you're an executive of a company is how do I focus on the highest impact things that I can do for my role? And, and making sure you're doing that and spending your time in those places, saying no to the stuff that isn't that, is, uh, is, that is true at every stage in your career, and it doesn't go away <laughs> when, you're, when you're leading the company, big or small. It's all the same. So important to uh, build that habit now. Absolutely. And just Amen. get better at it. Amen. Well, thank you, Samir, so much for taking the time to connect and share your story. Uh, personally, and then the story of Sandra as well. It's, it's pretty exciting. Thank you, Matt. I love the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. That's it for this week's conversation with Samir Dalakia at SendGrid. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You know, for me, it not only inspired a greater focus on our email communications, but it also helped us talk more as a team about our core values. This particular conversation has also inspired a greater focus on the business economics, our own particular business economics. I'm sure it has for yours as well. I found that particular part of the conversation really, really interesting. But I'm curious, you know, what did you get out of this conversation? Please reach out to me or even reach out to Samir directly and let him know. Uh, on Twitter, it would be a great place to do that. He's just at SP Dolakia. So that's S P as in Paul Dolakia, which is D as in dog, H O L A K. I -A. Make sure you hit him up. Let him know what you learned from this conversation. Or if you have any follow-up questions, Twitter's a great place to continue the conversation. And I hope to see you there. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you have any thoughts or feedback on the conversation with Samir, let us know in the comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts. 
And as always, to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. We'll catch you next time on Powder Cake Igniting Startups.